0: Welcome everyone to the May 2022 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. I'd like to give a special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, for making it possible today. And the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum is dedicated to the promotion, education, and dissemination of pre-hospital research. We believe it is the responsibility of emergency medical professionals worldwide to help build a body of evidence to examine pre-hospital emergency care. And so for those of you who are new, here on the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research that is happening in EMS. I'm Rimley Crow, and today I'll be joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Dave Page, Jeff Rollman, and Dr. Bill Toon. And as a reminder for everyone, the name of the paper that we're reviewing is Optimal Out-of-Hospital Blood Pressure in Major Traumatic Brain Injury, A Challenge to the Current Understanding of Hypotension, which was published in Annals of Emergency Medicine. And as always, this discussion is paired with an article written by our very own columnist, Dr. Tony Fernandez in EMS World called Journal Watch. So we encourage you all to check out the article. It'll be at emsworld.com under the category of education and training. And I'd like to thank the audience for joining us today. And since some of you are new and I know we've got a really big audience today, as we begin, I wanna remind you all that you can use that chat feature on your screen to type in questions and comments and we'll bring those into the conversation with us as we go. So don't be shy all right so we're gonna go ahead and just dive straight in um, the objective of this particular study was to look at the association between the out of hospital systolic blood pressure and patient outcomes you know why is this such a big deal well we know about traumatic brain injury and it affects a lot of patients and it often leads to long-term disability uh, not to mention a really high mortality rate so there's this notion that what we do in the pre-hospital setting can be really important for dictating patient outcomes. Uh, and this particular study comes from the EPIC study, which we'll talk about when we get to the methods, um, which, you know, focuses on TBI and a huge focus of those new guidelines that EPIC released was on brain perfusion. So there's been this emphasis on prevention and treatment of hypotension, but what is it that we don't know? Well the article sets us up nicely in the introduction, and it talks about how most of the existing research around blood pressure in TBI comes from small studies where the cut point for hypotension was dichotomous. And so this means, you know, patients were categorized as either having hypotension or no hypotension. And the most common cutoff for that is that systolic blood pressure of 90. And, you know, Tony and I could probably geek out on this forever that when you dichotomize something, it's good for interpretability. It makes it easier to understand the findings, but this may not always be realistic, right? So when we say hypotension is less than 90, we're, we're inadvertently saying that a blood pressure of 89 is hypotensive, but and that's somehow really different from a blood pressure of 91. But we know physiologically that's probably not true. So this study is really exciting as we get to look at blood pressure as a continuous variable and explore, you know, I mean, is 90 the right cut point? Is there something, you know, that we should be taking into consideration as we determine where should we start treating hypotension for patients with traumatic brain injury? And I know uh, we're going to be really chopping at the bit to get to the results of this one. I know a lot of you are excited about that. But first, let's go through a little bit of the methods. So, Tony, how about you lead us through and talk a little bit about where the study took place and where the data came from?
1: Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So this was a really interesting study. And just to highlight what you were saying before about um, cate- categorizing hypotension, um, a lot of times, and the authors do a really good job of talking about this, they, the previous studies had to categorize because they just didn't have the numbers to uh, look at this continuously. And they, this is a really large study. And I think when, when we get into it, uh, folks listening are going to be really interested. So this was uh, a pre-planned secondary analysis, of the excellence in pre-hospital injury care study. And that study is um, it is a collaboration between Arizona's fire departments, their ground and air EMS agencies, and the University of Arizona and the department their Arizona Department of Health Services. The goal of that initial study was, and this is I'm quoting this, uh, to dramatically increase the number of severe TBI victims who survive with good neurological outcomes by thoroughly implementing the national EMS TBI guidelines. So <clears throat> they have a wealth of data in, in this data set um, because of this initial this initial study. And the idea here was to use these data to, to not only identify patients with major TBIs, but to look at what happens prehospitally in terms of their systolic blood pressure, and how does that impact their outcomes? So, um, a lot of the previous studies, they had to be so small because in previously it was really hard to get linked outcomes for um, just in general, right? Now we've, we've all lived through that, but we're getting better. And now we have a study with uh, over 12,000 individuals, uh, patients in here with TBI, where we can really see, you know, what happens and, and where do we make a difference. So this, was, um, this study was, again, a secondary analysis and they looked at in order to get into the study right you had to you had to have been enrolled in either the pre-implementation or post-implementation phase of the epic study so these are patients with uh, physical trauma uh, who were transported directly or transferred to a level one trauma center by one of the agencies that were participating in the study they had to have a diagnosis of TBI. And what was interesting is it could be isolated TBI or it could be multi-system trauma that included TBI. Um, and they had to meet uh, one of a couple criteria. So one was the abbreviated injury scale um, of greater than or equal to three, the barrel matrix type one, or an out of hospital positive pressure ventilation with the BVM uh, they had to be intubated or have a superbiotic airway device um, placed, uh, fine, or they could have a crack. Um, so patients with isolated and with TBI combined and mostly trauma were included in the analysis. They only included a few patients, and I think these inclu- exclusion criteria make sense. So they included patients, drowning patients, or uh, in other words, non-mechanical mechanisms, uh, patients who... who were suffered from choking or strangulation, environmental injuries such as hypothermia, poisonings that included drug overdoses and carbon monoxide, and non-traumatic intracranial hemorrhage, So, um, and then other non-traumatic acute neurological emergencies such, such as bacterial meningitis and the like. What was really interesting about this study, and I'd really like to get your thoughts on this, Remley, um they included patients that were Uh, greater than or equal to 10 years of age. And typically when we think about a a study of adults, um, we're looking at a cutoff maybe around 15 or 16, maybe around 18. Um, And this is one of the few studies that we've looked at with a cutoff of less than 10 years of age. I thought that was really interesting and um, something that I think it's worth sitting back and talking about for for a second. So what did you think about that, Remley?
0: I also thought that was an important decision, and I'm glad that they laid out the rationale behind that decision. So uh, the cut point of 10 was chosen to include older children. And why 10? Well, we know that the multiplication or the, de- the decision around what is a normal blood pressure changes for children younger than 10 based on their age. So there's a complex formula there. And so to not mix those effects, they chose a range where you know normal systolic blood pressure would all be the same for this group of patients. And I know that we'll get to this in the analysis section, but I think it was wise that they also did some sensitivity analyses around, well, what happens if we exclude the children between 10 and 18 and see if the effects still hold? Uh, But I like that they took a patient-centered approach here. So there are children, you know, 10 to 18, who experience TBI and then including them in here lets us advance the science a little bit faster than if we did, well, we have to do a specific pediatric study here. Uh, so I like the decision, and um, I really like that they also did the sensitivity analysis around that.
1: I agree with you. I think it was really wise, and they did a lot of really sophisticated analyses in this study. And I think to simplify this part by um, not having to look at different thresholds for uh, ages zero to nine, I think that was that was a really smart decision and likely really helped with uh, interpreting the results. So again, they also excluded, uh, as as you'd expect, folks with uh, missing data for age, um, anyone who was missing a systolic blood pressure, or if they were missing the trauma type. So if we didn't know it was penetrating or blunt, uh, those those folks were excluded. And the primary outcome uh, was in-hospital mortality. However, they looked at some really interesting uh, secondary outcomes as well, including hospital length of stay, They looked at ICU length of stay. They also looked at hospital charges, which um, we'll get into, and that was pretty interesting. And uh, they looked for discharge to a skilled nursing facility or an inpatient rehab. Their analysis, as we said, we're not gonna um, get into a a deep dive into uh, uh, statistical geekery like Remley and I would love to do, Um, but for the simplicity of those online, Uh, Let's let's talk about their regression models and things that they adjusted for as they went through their analysis. So, they looked at again. They looked at continuous variables and they gave those. um, They summarized those with means and interquartile interquartile ranges as they should. Where they had categorical variables, they gave us frequencies and proportions. And they ran some uh, risk-adjusted models. And one when they ran their models, they adjusted for some important risk factors and uh, potential confounders, which included age and sex, uh, race and ethnicity. They also included out-of-hospital hypoxia, out-of-hospital airway management. They included the injury severity score. Um, They looked at, uh, they they matched to AIS scores, and uh, they looked at trauma types. So again, we looked at blunt versus penetrating, uh, payment sources, um, multi-system traumas, And out of hospital, whether out of hospital CPR was administered. So this, they 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 adjusted for a whole host of important potential confounders, which I thought was um, really important. So to estimate the optimal systolic blood pressure level, um, they used what what is called a fitted nonparametric function. Um, So they the again their their analysis was really sophisticated and what was great about it was as we get to the to the results, um the results, even though the analysis was really sophisticated, the results that they presented I think are are really easy for the reader to interpret. And um I think I think we might be ready to jump into the results I, I do want to open it up to any other panelists who are on the call to see if they had any any questions or any um anything important that i missed as, as we talk about how they did the study
2: hey dave hi hey um uh, first of all uh, awesome that we have such great participation online there's just a lot of interest in this topic and i'm glad that people are thinking wow okay uh is there something new about targeted blood pressures and uh, I'm glad you picked this, uh, Tony, to kind of revisit. Uh, when this first came out, Epic was epic, right? There was just some really great stuff about the H bombs and and um, this concept of uh, uh, hypotension plus hypoxia, 17 times greater mortality, and so there was um, there was this intermixing and uh, of of three of these three factors, and I think that. Um, these these H bombs were were you know uh, and again very iconic hypoxia hypotension hyperventilation and here we have a subset analysis post event which a lot of people start to get very very nervous about in- including these physicians and so there's there uh, so I want the, the listeners to know that when you start kind of looking retrospectively and digging into piles of data, especially when you have large numbers uh, of patients, you can sometimes find associations that are casual and that you you could find certain types of things that maybe initially you weren't intending to look for but now that you have the data, um, you know maybe you can kind of go look and, and 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 go retrospectively and say, but was there was were these types of people, and sometimes you find things like, well, people who smoke die of cancer. Well, yeah, um, they do. Uh, but you know, is it that 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 smoking caused that cancer, or that they have other things going on? And uh, it, so I, I I want us to be a little bit careful. Um, and at the same time, I feel like this is a little bit of was, is this news? Um, or is it homework? Okay. So does this lead us further into the conversation or is this kind of a, let's just make sure we do our homework, looking at the, at the blood pressures, because hypotension was one of those things that made the big H bombs and in particular um, not, you know, getting a blood pressure lower than 90, which of course, you know, when at the time when this is all being worked on, we have all these guidelines about hypotension with trauma patients, and there's this uh, subtle kind of, do we increase the blood pressure on certain types of patients that are really sick, and how low is too low, and when is fluid appropriate? And I know for for the ambulance service where I work our our targeted pressure you know we we need to maintain it above 120 and so these games begin to get played about well does a does a, a medical director interpret these numbers and say well my ambulance service we, we should go above 120 which is sort of close to 130 here uh and so these brackets of of this continuous variable become kind of interesting uh to interpret so Uh, We'll get to results, but I just wanted to frame this, and I think it is good to go go do secondary analyses. I I actually am a big proponent of, well, when we did this study, we weren't looking at this, and now that we know about it, we can can actually pivot uh, on some of our conclusions before. Okay, that's all.
0: Oh, I, th- I think that's a really important caveat, Dave, and I'm glad that you brought up some of these you know, inherent limitations based on retrospective data. And that's not to say that retrospective data is not something that we should be looking at, because I absolutely think that we should. Um, but your point is well taken around, do we interpret this as causation? Absolutely not. And that's laid out really well in the limitation section. Just because we see a relationship doesn't mean that it's causal. Um, you you know, you can. We have so many examples of things that aren't necessarily causal. Um, And there's some really good websites on like, for example, per capita cheese consumption is really highly correlated to the number of people who die tangled in their bedsheets. But I'm gonna keep eating cheese because I don't think that that's causal. Um, But in this case, you know, I think there's a couple of things that we should highlight when we're going into this with our critical eye, of course. One is that, is there a biologically plausible mechanism and I would say, yeah, absolutely. We know that having perfusion to the brain, especially an injured brain is really important. So it wasn't like this was a data mining expedition where they just looked for correlations between everything without an underlying rationale. In this case, there's a really clear and well-established rationale. So that gives it you know, one point towards, okay, we need to look at this. Um, and then I, th- you know, I think it's important to take into account the goal of this. The goal wasn't necessarily to prove causal association, but you know, randomized controlled t- trials take time and money. And so if we're going to do one of those, we should have a little bit of a reason to go into them. Right? So, um, this study I think sets us up for, Hey, we need further research here. And if we have limited time and resources, we should probably target them here because there's a promising finding Uh, versus, you know, if we looked at it and there was no association, okay, well, if I have limited time and money, maybe I target that where I think I'm more likely to find uh, something that'll change practice. Tony, what are your thoughts?
1: No, I think it's really important uh, that they've made it known that, yeah, this isn't a causal study, right? We can't prove causation here, um, but retrospective analyses are are very valuable, um, and yeah, I just have to echo what you said. We, we wouldn't want to go into a clinical trial, which is very expensive, very uh, in-depth, and very time-consuming, um, <clears throat> without a study like this to support that trial.
0: Absolutely. And so I think we're about ready to move into the results. A couple of things just to keep at the top of our mind from the methods, you know, is that one, this was within another trial within another study. So the EPIC study um, and there was a pre-implementation of the new guidelines period and a post-implementation of the guidelines period. So this is something that the authors controlled for. And all of those factors that Tony went through uh, are just an effort to say that, you know, this wasn't a randomized control trial. So let's let's control for some of those factors that could also explain the findings that we're seeing. Um, and so with that, we say we dive into the results. Let's do it. Okay, Tony, you mentioned that previous studies were limited in size, and this study took place nested within the EPIC study. So out of 21,000 patients, after applying the exclusion criteria for this analysis, we still end up with over 12,000 patients for study. So that's the first thing I take away from this. This is huge. And then another thing I put, you know, my eye on figure one here is to see who got excluded and why, and could this potentially introduce any bias? So we see that um, 7% of eligible subjects were excluded because there was no out of hospital systolic blood pressure. So when I see 7%, okay, that's a fair amount, but that's not a huge missing percentage, especially when you consider things like, well, some of these patients may have experienced cardiac arrest and other situations that made getting that blood pressure challenging and weren't necessarily the target population for this study. Um, Then we have the percent who are missing variables necessary for the model, like sex or the type of trauma or the head severity score. uh, That was only 0.6 percent of all the eligible subjects. So that's extremely low amount of missing data. And then we look at those who are missing um, pulse oximetry data, which was another criteria for eligibility here, and that was near five percent of eligible subjects. So overall, it's just important to pay attention to those things and think about how they might or might not have influenced the results of this study. All right, let's talk about what they found in terms of participant characteristics. Now, they have a huge table one, which is traditionally the the characteristics of the patients. And in this case, they've decided to stratify by whether or not the patient lived or died in the hospital. And I think that's also important because this helps us think through, well, what are some of those other confounding variables since the primary outcome is whether or not the patient lived or died? Um, And we we can look through some of this. So when we look at gender, we don't see huge differences, Um, but where I would like to direct some of our attention is to some of these severity scores and the trauma type. So if we look at the trauma type first and look at either blunt or penetrating, first of all, it's good to know how common these types of injuries are. Uh, So we see that about 5% of all of the patients in the study had a penetrating injury. But when we look at what percent of those who died had a penetrating injury, that number goes up to 22% compared to just 2.5% of those who lived. So we can see that penetrating injury is related to probability of dying. And that's probably not a surprise to us, right? Then we get into some of the severity scores, so there's a head injury severity score, an injury severity score, which region was affected. And we again see that, not surprisingly, but still important to take into account, is that those with higher severity were more likely to die. Uh, So we can see that of those who died with the head injury severity score, 88% of those who died were in the highest category, 5 to 6. Whereas only 11% of those who lived were in that category. So again, this is just set us, setting us up for, were the variables included in the model and were we controlling for these things since we wanna look at the outcome of dead or alive? And the table actually spans two pages. So I'm gonna go over here to uh, the end of table one. And this is where they looked at, you know, out of hospital hypotension, which is you know, the characteristic that's at hand here. And uh, we see that of those who died had the pre-hospital hypotension, whereas only 5% of those who lived had pre-hospital hypotension. But to your point, Tony, all of the things that you said around, well, some of this needs to be controlled for, there could be other explanations. That's just, again, setting this up for the model, which we're gonna take a look at those results. But I think it is important to take a look at overall mortality and things like that. So this patient was not really sick population, 12% of all the patients in the study died. So it tells us a couple of things. This is an important study to take on uh, to try to reduce mortality and disability. And two, these patients had a lot of underlying things that could affect the ultimate outcome of lived or died. And so it's really important to take those into account as we're building the models to look at you know, where is there any cut point, or are is you know 90 the best place to look at for hypotension? All right. And so moving us into table two, this is just a look at what variables were ultimately cor- were ultimately put into the final models that Tony mentioned, both the primary and all of the secondary outcomes. Uh, so you know, taking a look here, Tony, I'm interested in your thoughts on. What do you think about the variables they chose here and do they make sense given what we saw in table one
1: yeah i mean i think they do we saw as, as you mentioned um you know there there was uh, while males and the percentage of males didn't really change across uh dead or alive they were a, a high proportion of males and that's something that you typically want to control for as well as uh, race and ethnicity um the payer type and was interesting, and I think that because of the relationship we saw with uh, penetrating trauma, it makes perfect sense um, to have these in there yeah I think that um, what was interesting about this is when we look at the body regions isolated uh, Tbi versus multi system Tbi um, that measure of effect is 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 not uh, as impressive as I would have thought going into it um, so that that's um that that's something that we we certainly want to uh be aware of as as we interpret these results when you look at things like however cpr right you have an odds ratio of five that's that's something that you that you might expect going in so i think they they chose the right uh variables to adjust for uh so we can really make some make some interpretations about um how systolic blood pressure affects uh, the outcome of interest
0: and i think you made a lot of good points there so you know for something like male Um, Perhaps in this particular data set, we don't see a relationship between male and and death. We can see that the 95% confidence interval encloses one, so that means there's no difference. But the author still chose to include it because other research has said that, you know, this variable can be really important. And so I think they did a very good job of making this model more generalizable so that if we were to repeat it with another data set, that we could, you know, apply the same confounding variables and hopefully see similar results since we need you know replication of this kind of work Um, one other thing that i would call out here is the first variable in this table two is the study phase so that's phase one versus phase three and this was of the initial epic study so phase one was pre-implementation of the new guidelines and phase three was post-implementation of the new guidelines and we see an odds ratio of 1.2 i mean there's 20 percent greater likelihood of death during the pre-phase than the post-phase So that definitely tells me, I'm glad that they controlled for this variable and that it tells me uh, if I haven't already read the EPIC study, I should probably go read that EPIC study and check out what those guideline changes were because it appears there is a difference. Um, And then... I think those are all the really big ones here. Obviously, um, we're gonna look, so where it says like systolic blood pressure, nonparametric function, uh, that's something that we're gonna see graphically. And I think it's really smart. So I know as soon as I said the word nonparametric, like 10 people tuned out, <laughs> but all that means is that this isn't likely to be a linear association. And we can kind of think that, what do you think about hypertension and hypotension? It's probably not a straight line all the way across, right? We probably spoiler alert we're gonna see a u on this one so let's take a look at the main findings the drum roll is ready i think here is their figure two and their figure three which are simply the unadjusted analysis and the adjusted thanks dave (laughs) and the adjusted analyses related to they're looking at their primary outcome which is death so in hospital death versus you know, all of the lowest out of hospital systolic blood pressures. We didn't talk about this, but the choice of lowest systolic blood pressure was also an important one versus they could have chosen first or last, uh, but they, they specifically looked at the lowest out of hospital blood pressure. And so we can see in the unadjusted analysis, so figure two here, we see that the curve gets pretty deep. We start off with the probability of death being really high as we're at the very low end of this lowest out-of-hospital SVP. And then we see it sort of level off somewhere around like 120, 125. But then we see that the probability of death goes back up again when we get high blood pressures. So that's something equally important to pay attention to. But now importantly, let's look at the adjusted analysis in figure three. Same trend, perhaps not as drastic of a dip, but it's encouraging to see that the trend of this line, the shape of the line didn't really change so again we see a much higher probability of death at those really really low lowest out of hospital blood pressures and at the really really high Uh, so this this is like for me the takeaway on this is looking at okay um what's going on with the shape of this curve we've got a u-shape that maybe we experienced and then the second thought that comes to mind here when i'm looking at this is well what's going on in that hypertensive group and the authors do a good job at helping explain some of this they say well that hypertensive group was much more likely to have a severe TBI. So even though they were controlled for this, residual confounding is still possible. And so it's important that you know, sit back and think about, well, what, what could be explaining these findings that we're seeing?
2: I think this is really complicated uh, research. Uh, it, 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 um, if you start to think about, you know, I'll just uh, just put my head in the game in the back of the ambulance and I think Wow, this patient is got zero blood pressure or near zero blood pressure. Um, looks to have all sorts of confounding problems. It's not just that they have a TBI, but they maybe have internal bleeding or blunt trauma or any other thing. And so they're hypotensive for many reasons, not just uh, necessarily TBI. And and so I think to tease out uh, the 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 um, uh, factors that may or may not affect survival, when it's just about TBI, gets very interesting, both both hypertensive and hypotensive, right? And so could there be, uh, in some cases, use of, of whatever technique to try and correct a different problem? And that's why I liked Epic EPIC-1, was really about if you hyperventilate, you're causing changes in hemodynamics that could really affect all sorts of circulatory issues and bring down blood pressure by just increasing pressure in the chest. So mechanical return of, of uh, venous flow into the heart. When you start really just trying to take those out, and, wow. I, and I think the previous table kind of showing us, and, and I've got it up on a, on a second monitor here because it's so deep, to try and think, well, it's really—were they intubated, and if intubated, were they hyperventilated? And if, if in fact, um, we're we're also talking about hypoxia, so a single hypoxic event or continual hypoxic event, and uh, and the graphs that are on the screen now really clean it up for one variable, and that's that's systolic blood pressure. And it's and it's you know dramatic you know you see that sort of wow for this one thing we were able to manage it um, or the patient really never needed management of it and they the ones that survive are right in that category um, and I'm curious for the both of you uh, since you're you're deeply involved in these parametronic uh, supercalifragilistic expialidociously incredible statistical models. That, um, that to, to do regression, right, to look at each one of them together and say, does this one matter? Does this one matter? Does this one matter? Do these two matter? Do these three matter and not this one? It's, um, it gets scary to me to pull this one out um, when we already knew there was a strong association with the uh, concept of somebody being hyperventilated. And I wondered why they wouldn't have given us some similar tables with, you know, isolating those patients that were in those categories that were actually where, where uh, breathing was controlled. If if we can actually know the rate of breathing, uh, and and maybe surrogates for it like entitled CO2. So uh, when you when you when you get very heady around this, could you tease out? The patients that were uh, either hyperventilated or had an event a hypotensive event and see if this association still holds or is that just heresy and are we going fishing for just whatever whatever associations we can think of that might have made a difference
0: so I, th- I think there's a lot to unpack there and they're all really good questions so this did again take place in the context of epic so I think in the adjusted model, and that's really important here too, is to look at these graphs. They have different axes, so we need to be thinking about what is the size of this effect. So even at you know, the the valley of this, we're still looking at your percentage probability of death is still somewhere around 10 percent. That's pretty high. Um, whereas in the unadjusted model, we see it go down a little bit lower, but still right around that 10 percent. So that's, that's still pretty high. At least, you know, one in 10 chance of death is, is you know, not not something to to scoff at, and something that says we still need to do some work. Um, But in the adjusted analysis, so let's talk about, you know, did they control for hyperventilation? Did they control for some of these other variables? That's the theory behind a multivariable model, like what they did. And so they put in the pre and the post effect of the trial, so phase one versus phase three, and that would be where they started to control for hyperventilation and to change the guidelines around that, Um, but did they explicitly, you know, put that in the model, not for this particular analysis? Um, they did control for hypoxia, any episodes of hypoxia, which would be really key to note, but I agree with you. I think end tidal is a really important variable there because we know that if you're looking at SpO2, you are looking in the rearview mirror, whereas if you're looking at end tidal, you're looking in the windshield. Um, but my guess is, you know, if, if we look at the data around that, how often are we capturing end tidal? Are we getting it on every patient? The answer's probably no there, and that the patients who get entitled are probably different from the patients who don't have entitled readings. And so that's, again, where a prospective study could follow up on this and add to what we already know. Say, all right, if we look at entitles, does this effect still hold? If we look at all these other explanatory variables, does this effect still hold? Um, but that's not to say that there, there isn't something to pay attention to. This This flat valley here is the interesting finding, right? So we see that there's, this decreasing proportion or decreasing probability of death all the way from 50 to like 130 and then it's pretty level from 130 to about 180 so that range seems to be okay uh, but for me the big question that's left after the study is you know well we don't know if they were intervened upon to maintain that blood pressure or if they were just maintaining that blood pressure to begin with because i think there's something inherently more healthy about somebody who's able to maintain a blood pressure of 130 versus somebody who dips below 90 and then gets treated, which is what our protocols would typically tell us to do, right? So in order to have gotten treatment, you had to dip. And so I think that's that's the big question that I have coming out of the study is the next thing I'd like to see done is, all right, let's intervene before they dip below 90 and see if that's, if these findings still hold.
2: Do you think they could have, and it's, 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 we always try to have the authors on. So it's always, this is kind of armchair quarterbacking and it's not fair to the authors because they they might've thought about all sorts of things and they're out here. (laughs) But, um, but could they not have been able to have a line that said, these patients were intervened upon, had um you know whether it's ventilation or uh, some form of iv fluid or some form of presser to maintain uh to maintain that blood pressure versus ones that were left alone and might that line ha- have been different and it would tell us a lot more about just exactly how uh which interventions were helpful do you think that could have could still be done with a secondary analysis
0: yeah, I mean, I don't know with this data set what got captured, but I think that's a perfectly fair, you know, next analysis. And it, But it would be really important to think about who has the data and who doesn't and see if there's any baseline differences in those patients. Um, you know, I don't know necessarily were only ALS services included in EPIC. I would have to go back and read the actual EPIC study and look at their inclusion criteria because it would have, you know, they weren't able to give a or weren't yeah. able to do some of these interventions. Um, but assuming the data were captured, and importantly, I'm going to always do a plug for good data, uh, that they were captured in discrete data elements. So that's using the drop down menus versus in the narrative, I gave X, Y, or Z vasopressor. Um, it makes well, it really it, challenging to study.
2: A shameless plug because we have workshops coming up with a data set that would have some of these independent variables captured. And um, and so again, shameless plug for the PCRF and for uh, ESO who helped sponsor this webinar. So full disclosure, uh, but they're free. They're free workshops where we could actually query with the intentionality of looking at retrospective data and all its limitations, but look at these independent variables and see if those things are associated, uh, and if they were within certain parameters, does this association hold? And um, and it's the kind of work that I think if we're talking about uh, just kind of really making uh, scientific or decisions based on science or using science to advance a profession, um, we, we need to go back and look at this work. It's just phenomenal work and see if it holds with, uh, with another uh, data set that's perhaps a little bit wider and where we can drill down to those patients who might've been able to support their own blood pressure or not. Um, So uh, I I also find it really great that they had similar charts for both the types of patients that that were uh, admitted to ICU and uh, discharged to a long-term care facility. Because it's not often, let's admit it, that we have uh, outcome data. So it's it's rare, and and I'm super proud that the workshops we're doing here in May and in September. If you haven't signed up, again, uh, shameless plug, but they're they're free. Uh, you have to come to Austin and and you know have some tacos with Remley. But it it's uh, it's the tacos themselves are the reason to go. The data. whatever. I mean, it is
0: 99 degrees here today. It's scary.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, so so the concept here of tying um, uh, the the patient survival to discharge to a long term care facility. I don't know how I feel about that. Like, um, I get the whole cardiac arrest, your survival to discharge, neurologically intact CPC scores, but why to the nursing home? Why, why, what, what prompted them to, to, to deal with that?
0: That's a really great question. And my thought around why that is that TBI is associated with so much disability so were you discharged the nursing home because you had to learn how to walk again so is this their way of looking at the equivalent of a cpc score in cardiac arrest right which cpc score is just a measure of neurologically intact and so i think this was the surrogate for no deficit Um, now what the information they probably didn't have on hand that would be really nice to have is did they get picked up from a skilled nursing facility Right. So if they got picked up from one and discharged to one, that's really different than I got picked up from my house and now I got discharged to a skilled nursing facility. And that would be another thing I take into account with this. But going back to table one, this is a younger population if we look at the median age. So I wouldn't suspect that many of these patients were picked up initially from a skilled nursing facility. Um so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect that to affect the results, but that is my supposition on why that secondary outcome.
2: Um, please, please, we have really smart people on the list of, of in the audience. I feel almost like sheepish because they're like they are experts and they're sitting here quietly listening. So please speak up and ask questions. And Dana Cox is asking, how, how what's that adjusted graph? Like, what do you mean? Like, how do you adjust it? Uh, so
0: can maybe talk a you can bit more. tell us a little bit about those variables that were taken into account for that. For so that's Figure three if anyone's following along with the actual paper. So uh, when we're looking at figure three, um, Tony, what variables did they adjust for in all of their models? What were some of the things that, you know, we need to think about that got put into here?
1: Yeah, so let me get back to their, um, their models and we'll talk about some of the things that they, they actually put in here.
0: Yeah, I think they did a good job. It was pretty robust what they adjusted for, Dana. And so when we say adjust, all we mean is that they're taking into account holding that thing constant. So like, let's say that some of the patients were older, some were younger, Older patients already have a propensity for having a worse outcome, perhaps. So they would hold that variable constant or you know, compare apples to apples there so that the effect of age isn't playing into what we're seeing here. Um, but age wasn't the only thing they took into account.
1: No. And <clears throat> so they looked at uh, out of po- hospital hypoxia, like we talked about, um, any out of hospital airway management as well. Um, they looked at some scores, or injury severity scores, or I- AIS scores, um, the trauma type that we talked about, multi, whether it was multi-system or not, the regional in- injury severity score. They looked at out-of-hospital CPR. Um, so, and they looked at the the treating trauma center. Um, So
0: they took into account which facility, they were all level one trauma centers, which is another really important inclusion criteria for this. So all the patients were initially transported from scene to a level one trauma center, um, which there's 10 of those in the region where this study took place. So if we're thinking about how does this apply to me? Well, if you're not able to reach a level one trauma center, uh, that would be another thing that we would need to take into account because we know that the treatment upon arrival at the hospital is also very important, not just uh, the EMS.
2: What do you think about that? They excluded six thousand patient records, six thousand, which is fully like almost like to the naked eye about a third, uh, and another well, another five hundred and thirteen that were unknown transfers, um, that were not directly to tra- transported to the trauma center, and so um, so that's that's an interesting concept in and of itself. If you if if these were all direct transports not even uh sort of uh taken to the community hospital then transfer them i i just don't know how to feel about that um and why? so i would say just because we don't have the data
1: from the other hospitals maybe I think that, that was an they may not have been
0: participating for... in the initial epic sorry we yeah. go
1: ahead uh, no that's we were saying the same thing i think that was an inclusion criteria from the initial epic study uh let see. Got it.
0: And that probably helps keep things cleaner. So again, like this isn't this study wasn't intended to be the end all be all and say, like, this is the answer and we should all be doing this. This is largely exploratory and says, you know, is there something worth investigating here? Should we dedicate more time and resources to this particular research question? And I think it does achieve that goal. And they do
1: a really good job of saying that in the paper that this is not yeah. the end all be all, that this is this is 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 is. is Flame to fire that 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 clinical trial.
2: Yeah, and and I think for the those that are maybe not as familiar with research and think, um, you know, all studies are equal, et cetera. The the concept of, you know, there are case series. So let's just take the the last hundred patients that came into this one hospital that all had TBI of this type. And then there's this this concept of a whole system doing an intervention like this was, which is amazing. It's fantastic. These folks have been involved in things like the OPAL study, which looked at ALS interventions in Canada and and said, if we just did nebulizers, we we have decreased ICU stays and patients don't even get hospitalized. So there's definitely an an intentionality of the EPIC study to say, as a system, could we take care of it? And it's not the same to do that than to say, let's just look at at, it kind of the epidemiology and surveillance of the TBI group and say that patients who did go to the trauma center did better or patients that went to the community hospital did worse. Um, This is not a study geared towards that. And so it can't really make a conclusion about all TBI patients in general. It's the TBI patients that went to trauma centers, which by definition are probably the sickest. Mm -hmm. And so, death here at a 12% sounds really bad, but it's also that we've already cherry-picked the patients that were the, the, the sickest. Do we agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, I, I feel like um, when you discount a lot of the ones that are in the gray area, we're all talking about gray areas. We're talking about gray areas of blood pressure, right? And whether mm-hmm. we intervened or not. So we've sliced off a young group of people who all were transported to a, uh, to a level one trauma trauma center. And we're in an area of the, uh, of the US where we're really focused on what it is that we need to do to work with this population to have better outcomes. And, and so here the blood pressure story just jumps off the page, you know, let's keep it at 120. And uh, perhaps, perhaps we have patients that were in that other gray and all the, the areas in between that are not in this analysis, and does that change our our thought overall about the management of TBI? And I don't know that it does. I just, um, you know, I think we have to know what this tells us versus what a study that says, uh, you know, death from TBI is at twelve percent, which is not what this study is telling us. No, no, no. And I think
0: that's key, and it also is key for us to consider, like would we expect that this association, is there anything that would make this association different if I went to you know, a critical access hospital first? And I, I think the brain needs perfusion no matter where it goes. So for me, I would expect similar results in a different setting, uh, but it, it's the post-arrival interventions that we would need to control for and study at that point. Um, so, and I, I think it was wise that they controlled for clustering within trauma centers because within a trauma center, you probably have similar similar protocols. Uh, versus between trauma centers. So I think they did take into account a lot of this, um, but yeah, I think it's absolutely a good point that, well, this might not apply to my study if I'm super rural um, and we would need a study to look at that. And speaking of gray areas, we have a good question from Jewel in the uh, chat here and it's talking about, hey, are those dotted lines around the solid line, the confidence interval? And Yeah, they are, that's the 95% confidence interval. So we can see that in, in the adjusted analysis, the confidence intervals get a little bit wider, but also the axis is a little different. Um, and, and that's expected because the sample size drops a little bit as we adjust for all of those different variables. So uh, that's a really good question and that's exactly what we're looking at. And now, I know Tony mentioned a lot of the secondary outcomes, so I do want to highlight those. Uh, the good news is that the finding, the trend stays about the same, so pay attention to the shape of that curve. But you know, when we look here at figure four, again, we're seeing really similar trends in terms of when we get to around 120, 130, it's the effect levels out. And then when we get somewhere around 180, we see the U pop back up going towards higher of whatever the outcome was in this case, things like length of stay, length of ICU stay. Um, But I will put one caveat on those length of stay variables. And I think Tony already knows what it is, is that for patients who died, we saw in table one that their length of stay was around one day but being discharged at one day because you were dead versus being discharged at one day because you were healthy enough to go home are really different outcomes. And so that's something that we should just keep in mind as we're looking at these kinds of charts. And I don't know, Tony, were there any of the other secondary outcomes that you wanted to highlight? I know that we're getting towards the end of the time. And I do wanna make sure that we have time for more audience questions. Um, but I, I thought that the secondary outcomes were all really interesting.
1: Oh yeah, and I think that it was remarkable that the the shapes of these curves are so similar, right? For 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 all these different outcomes. That's that again. This is not the the, the end all prove it type study, right? But the the fact that all of these curves look similar and and what we're seeing around you know 130 to 180 um, seems like a safety zone almost. Um, you may it it, it certainly uh, calls for a, a clinical trial, so we can actually adjust for this ahead of time, right, not at the back end when doing model, and, um, and you know, figure out, you know, with with a, a clinical trial, we can show causation, and that's, that I think that's, that is clearly a next step.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I love that, you know, you talked about they stay the same no matter what, so that goes back to those sensitivity analyses. We had the question of, well, Penetrating trauma, we know those patients tend to do worse um, from other research and just from our field experience, so how do things look there? Multi-system trauma, we'd expect they'd do worse, so how how do those curves look? Uh, Removing the children, the 10 to 18-year-olds, how do those curves look? And by and large, they all follow that same U-shape with that same plateau somewhere around 120 to 180. Uh, So I think when we do have retrospective data with all of its nuances and confounding, when we're able to do the sensitivity analyses and still see very similar results, that builds some more evidence towards, okay, this is an effect that we should be looking out for. Um, so here is again, uh, figure eight, figure five here is looking at the non-mortality outcomes. And then I can flip through some of these again. Uh, you don't have to memorize the figures by any means, but the idea is just pay attention to the shape of those curves. And so we see again, this is the multi-system trauma versus the isolated trauma, really similar shapes. Uh, And we see the same on any of the other sensitivity analyses that were conducted. Um, So I know we're moving into our last nine minutes and I'll open it up if any of the other panelists have questions and we'll we'll talk through some of the like, what do we do with this study now?
2: Yeah, that's really kind of where I'm at, so. One one I was trying to uh, read through, just re 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 read through this this business about uh, 130 versus 120, uh, because in the graphs 125 looks pretty good, and um, and so it, you know I get worried about picking numbers just to pick numbers just because 90 sounds like we can remember it, but actually right. 85 was okay too, um, and so do you do you have a good sense of why they bracketed uh, 130 to 80 and this this sort of um, 90 to 119, uh, you know, is the nearly I'm reading from the study nearly hypotensive group 90 to 9 to 119 um, compromised in 36% of the cases. Uh, do you can, can do you guys have a sense a better sense of guidance there? And, and do we really have a hard and fast, uh, let's target 130, but if we get to 120, we stop?
0: Oh, Dave, in honor of Star Wars Day, I'm going to pull out the only a Sith deals in absolutes. <laughs> We're looking for this magic cut point where like above this is good and below this is bad, and there's no such thing. There's not going to be such a thing.
2: Yeah. And I, it, I
0: that, especially when you take into account comorbidities. What if the patient was on a, you know, beta blocker, calcium channel blocker and so there's never going to be this like it's always good or always bad number so first of all yeah. it's level. but mm-hmm. to your point I, I think it is interesting how they've picked where the line levels out so they used graphical representation here to say there's a window here that we should be paying attention to and so I, I, my key takeaway of, if you know we we're going through these was one be beware of what we call dicatomania, where you look for that cut point um, that there's probably a different effect. What we do see in this study, and I think is really important, is you know they they moved the cut point and looked at different analyses, and, and they say this in the actual article, and that there was differences from a really wide window all the way up to like 140. So that just says that 90 is not a magical number, and it reminds us of that, and that we should be thinking about it. Um, yeah. That near hypotension group is super interesting. So. Um, yeah. The near hypotension that you mentioned was like up to 119. That wasn't rare. So when we talk about hypotension by the 90, right, the 90 cut point, that was only 8% of patients. But when we talk about the near hypotension group, that was 36% of cases. So out one in three patients was in this this area where we're like, if we intervene, will they have a better outcome? Uh, so i think that's what the next studies are going to be doing is looking at that that near hypotension window and should we be intervening earlier more aggressively or should we you know wait for that magic 89 to happen
2: well and i'll read right from their discussion it says our findings clearly point clearly point to the need for future clinical trials comparing the current treatment thresholds with higher targets potentially as high as 110 to 120. so uh you know I, I know our medical director took uh, took action and said 120. That's your new target. Um, I also want to be cautious that uh, paramedics out there don't just decide to throw out current guidelines based on a study that's you know looking at retrospective uh, you know secondary analyses, reanalyzing the stuff that we've already exposed in another study. So um, hmm. Careful, careful. Talk to your medical director before you make. Yeah, it. the
1: authors are, are clearly not trying to change practice with this study. What they are doing is they they found an important question that needs further investigation, and I think that's that that was the intent of this study is to is to say, look, we need to spend more time here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a great question from Isaac here around: uh, Did the study account for travel time and scene time? So overall, EMS encounter time um, and not that I noticed in the method section. Now, it very well may have been accounted for, but wasn't explicitly stated. Um, but even so, one of the things that comes to mind with this question here is really important: is you know, what was the opportunity to capture vital signs? So for me, I'm thinking sicker patients probably had more sets of vital signs captured, and so that hypotension was probably more closely watched versus you know capturing them every 10 minutes, or maybe we only got two sets of vital signs before we reached the hospital if we have really short times to that level one trauma center. So all of the, that are really great variables for us to take into account and for us to think about in future studies. Um, so great question there. All right, I know I have like the really unpopular task of keeping us on time. <laughs> so I do have to wrap us up, but I would like to give time for any last thoughts or any last words on this. And you know, Dave Page, I'll start with you. Anything that you wanna leave the audience with before I, I take us off. <laughs>
2: Well, I, first of all, I want to just make sure everybody knows there's a PCRF um, Journal Club podcast uh, and webinar every, every month. And that uh, I want to thank you both for identifying the cool studies and, and all the many times, 90% of the time when we have the authors is, is even more cool, but, um, but you know, your level of, of analysis is awesome. And also a shameless plug for our Uh, We we have an open call for abstracts to be presented at the International Scientific Symposium at EMS World Expo, which is in uh, Orlando in October. And that deadline is coming up at the end of June. So uh, please reach out, prehospitalcare.org is our website. We want you to participate in research, do research, either by coming to one of our workshops or if you have the ability to do it uh, with, with local resources, we want to help you. We've got 42 mentors standing by, operators are standing by to help you. And we want to see more TBI research for sure uh, at this meeting. So please, uh, you know, deadline for abstracts coming up uh, and uh, we'll have a educational webinar for educators to look at science in that journal club on the last Friday of every month. So that's coming up as well.
0: Thanks, Dave. And Dr. Fernandez, any last thoughts or words that you want our audience to take into account as we take, as we take the study? in?
1: Yeah, so first I just want to, you know, say thank you and congratulate the authors. This is a good study, and I think that this is a study that will lead to more important studies um, that, 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 are, that are, may really impact that what we do and how we care for TBI patients uh, going forward. I think that certainly uh, for our audience, take these with a grain of salt. This was uh, not only a retrospective analysis but it was a a secondary analysis of uh, data that were collected for another purpose um so we the, certainly while the findings are striking and really interesting um this cannot be the last study uh, that that looks at this so um you know to highlight what dave was saying please do do some of this research and submit it to pcrf and uh let's see let's see what you found and we can have a you know, put all these these data into context and leading up to the clinical trial and let's see. Um let, let's see what we find.
0: I love that. And yeah, this absolutely cannot be the last study. And we have great comments from both Tammy and Lucas in there with ideas for the next study. So come join us in the September research forum, perhaps looking at things like what about abdominal injury? And is there a different targeted range there? Or looking at things like, what about map? instead of just systolic blood pressure, or Tony and I have done some work with shock index and other conditions. So what about mm-hmm. shock index or modified shock index? Uh, so the number of questions, I love it when a study raises more questions than it answers, and that's really common in research. I mean, if I knew what I was doing, it would just be called search. Uh, so I think that that's really awesome to hear. And I, before I give us our, our closing remarks here, I will say, Yes, this is, a, this is a great study for us to think about, You know, what is the range where we should start intervening when we start to see a trend towards hypotension? Um, but my biggest takeaway from the study is that it tells me if I haven't looked at the EPIC guidelines recently and, and the new TBI guidelines, I should go do that and make sure that we're following the evidence there and following the evidence as it evolves. So be ready to pivot when the time comes. Um, this has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you to all of our panelists and thank you to all of our audience members. Fantastic participation all the way around. Um, and if you liked this, please do make sure to, t- to tune in for our Educational Research Journal Club podcast focusing on uh, teaching methods and the newest findings there. That'll be May 27th, Friday. Uh, And then we will be back here with another awesome clinical podcast, picking out another great research article. That's the second Monday of every month at noon central. So that next one will be on June 13th. Uh, Thank you all again for listening and we look forward to nerding out with you more next time.
1: Thank you, Carol.